God shows no partiality. Those are the words of the Apostle Peter recorded in Acts chapter 10. It's the beginning of a sermon that he offers in the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. God shows no partiality. It's a clear word. One that includes the idea of belonging. And yet it was something that Peter had a difficult time understanding himself. A few days before, he was not willing to accept anyone and everyone into the, into the church. He was pretty clear that only a, a small portion of people who believed the certain, certain things and understood certain things would be welcomed and accepted by God. He believed that God's mercy, love, and forgiveness was narrow, only for a few. And then, in that afternoon, when he expressed these views, he suddenly had a vision of God. God appeared to him. And God essentially said, dude, get over yourself. Just so you know, 2,000 years ago, God was a lot hipper than God is today. <laughs> Dude, get over yourself. Who do you think you are? Do you not know that the Israelites were called by Abraham to be a light to the nations? Do you not know that Jesus came to shine that light as brightly as it has ever shone before? Have you forgotten already the teachings of the one you name as Lord and Savior? The one who gave love and grace, forgiveness and mercy to all he encountered. Have you forgotten? Peter understood. He got the message. The message, the vision was clear. Not long after that vision then, out of the blue, he receives an invitation to the home of Cornelius, this Roman centurion. He lived in Caesarea Maritima. Some of you who've been on Holy Land trips here have been there. It's a beautiful spot right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's where Herod built a palace. It's where Pontius Pilate built a palace while they were there. Gorgeous, beautiful views, cool breezes off of the sea itself. It's there that Peter is invited into the home of Cornelius. And he declares to them, God shows no partiality. And then he continues on in, in the sermon and he essentially says, if you practice grace, if you practice love, if you practice mercy, if you practice forgiveness, if you welcome anyone and everyone to the table and make sure that everyone has a seat at that very table, then you are already living and acting in the way that God wants us to. No matter what your faith may be, no matter where you're from, no matter where you may be going. It's a beautiful sermon, a marvelous word. It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul was trying to say in today's epistle reading to the church in Galatia. There is therefore no longer Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and female. All are one in Christ Jesus. All are one. Everyone belongs. All of the social stratifications that we still have in our society that were even more intense in the Roman world, they're gone. They've been eliminated. They've been pushed to the side. At this table, in this place, we are welcomed as God's children, period. Because all belong. Ironically, one of the reasons Paul wrote this to the church in Galatia is that he's having a rather significant disagreement with the apostle Peter. Their disagreement is named in Galatians chapter 2. Peter was practicing what he preached. He was welcoming everyone. But then he learned there would be some visitors who were disciples of James. James was an early church leader. So he, Peter sends all of these folks from all around, 
Gentiles, others, people from the edges of life, people from the margins, all those folks are asked to leave because Peter is worried if these disciples of James see him meeting with these others, they might criticize him. Paul, according to Galatians 2, Paul gets in his face. That's what it says in your Bible. He, he confronts him face to face, looks him in the eye, and basically calls him a hypocrite. You're preaching this and living this. Aren't you glad our church fights will not be in the, in the Bible, by the way? 2,000 years later, we're still, we're still talking about this ancient church fight. And we understand. Paul may be harsh here, but he's speaking the truth. We know a hypocrite when we see one. You know, you've seen hypocrites before. I've seen them too. We know, don't we, what a hypocrite looks like. When I was in the ninth grade, my best friend was Johnny Lee. Johnny was small, slight, very quiet. His parents had immigrated to the United States from Korea a few years before he was born. We met on the first day of school in first period in Algebra 1. Johnny was a great math student, very quiet, very shy, but a great student. We later found out that we also were in the band together. Well, band practice was right after lunch, and he was a clarinet player, and I, I, was, I played the trumpet. Well, I carried a trumpet anyway. I don't know that I really played it very well. And we, we soon became fast friends, and it was a great friendship. I mean, even though he was small and slight and, and quiet, and I was tall and played a lot of sports and always got in trouble for talking too much in class. I know that's a shock to you, but it happened uh, quite often when I was in high school especially. Even, even though we had vast differences, we found out that our friendship was a, was a way to also help each other. The, the, the only way I got through Algebra 1 was because of my friend Johnny Lee. I mean, in fact, I, I just want you to know, I went to seminary because there was no math. Johnny was a great musician, but he was a terrible marcher. He would always get lost in the halftime shows that our, that our band would put on. And so I'd meet with him after school and show him how to pivot, where to go, and how to count in your head, how many steps. And if you were in the marching band, you understand all that sort of thing. We probably had lunch three or four times a week together, just became good buddies. About six months into the school year, so it would have been around February, we were walking to band class after lunch, walking together, when a, a group of boys, five of them, came up behind us, right up close to us, and they started chanting Johnny's name. Johnny Lee, Johnny Lee, but they weren't saying Johnny or Lee. They dropped the J and they dropped the L and they replaced it with an R. Do you hear the racist chant they were shouting? using a sing-song, racist, Asian kind of voice. It was ridiculous. It was frightening. I was scared, and I could see my friend Johnny was very scared. They got closer, and they poked him. Johnny Lee! I, I could see that he was on the verge of tears. But then I stepped away. I put my back against the hallway. And those five boys, they got closer to Johnny. They got right up to him, and they were pushing him and chanting and pushing him and chanting right into the bedroom. And then they left him alone. I waited. I waited until the last possible moment when the bell would ring and I could get into class, hoping that Johnny would have taken his seat in the clarinet section and I could sneak in the back and sit with the trumpets. When I walked through that door, Johnny was standing right there. 
and looked me in the face. And there were tears in his eyes. And he turned around, walked away, never spoke to me again. It's 50 years ago. Feels like it happened today. And let me tell you, I was only 14 years old, but I knew the Bible. I knew the Bible probably better than anyone else in the room except for maybe Jennifer and Sarah. I knew the Bible at 14 very well. You may not know this, or maybe you don't remember, but I was Commander Glenn Miles in the Jet Cadets for Jesus. They're laughing, but it's a true story. And yes, it's a major dork thing to be a commander in the Jet Cadets for Jesus Club, but the way you moved up to become an officer was by memorizing the Bible. I moved up faster than anybody else ever in the history of that Jet Cadets Club to become Commander Glenn Miles. I knew the Bible, and you memorize Bible verses, including Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, all are one. I knew that verse. I understood it at 14, what it meant. I'd heard my father, the pastor, preach on, those, on that text, on what those words mean about belonging, about full acceptance of everyone and anyone, no matter who they are, where they're from. I knew it. And when my friend needed me, I turned away. Our family moved at the end of that school year to a new community. I enrolled in a new school. I've never seen Johnny again. And yet it haunts me to this day. We know a hypocrite when we see one. We know what it looks like, too, when someone stands up in the face of evil and refuses to turn away. My sermon today is titled Life Together. It's based on a book of the same title by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor and theologian who stood up in the face of the, of the evil of Hitler, the evil of Nazism. He created what he called an underground seminary in Germany in the 1930s where like-minded pastors and theologians like him could gather together, study the Bible, read theology, and talk about how to build community. The book Life Together is about how to create Christian community, no matter what's happening in the world. He names some of the challenges, some of the issues that are there. It's a beautiful text. It's 90 years old almost now, but I would highly recommend it to you. It's worth reading because it speaks even to us today in today's world about what do we do, how do we keep community at the same time standing up in the face of evil. You know, don't you? Bonhoeffer was one of the few pastors in Germany who challenged Hitler publicly, who stood up against him. He was eventually arrested, imprisoned, and on what turned out to be the last day of World War II, he was executed by the Gestapo, which gives a poignancy and a power to his words that still matter today. I want you to hear one little section from the book. Let's put it on the screen. The basis of spiritual community is truth. The basis of emotional community is desire. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from everyday Christian life in community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. For in the poor sister or brother, Christ is knocking at the door. That person who's been alone, that person who's on the outside, that person who needs a place like this is knocking on the door. In the name of Jesus Christ, they're knocking on the door. Do we have, do we have the courage 
to open that door to be the community that, that God calls us to be. Where, where did Bonhoeffer get these ideas? Where did Peter and Paul, who stumble themselves, who aren't always perfect, we have records of their stumbles and their failures in the New Testament, but still, they preach this inclusive word. Where do they get these ideas from? From Jesus. You know, don't you, that the political elites, the religious elites, the societal elites, they looked down their noses at Jesus they called him names. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. They, they ridiculed the people that he was with, sex workers and tax collectors and people who normal society would never include or invite into their homes. That's where Jesus went. Now, he was as open to inviting all the society folks and all the religious folks and all the political folks as well. And some of them were a part of his movement. But most of the time, he was derided, laughed at, looked down upon. Where did Peter, Paul, and Bonhoeffer get these ideas? From Jesus, whose arms opened as wide as east is from west, welcoming everyone. 2,000 years later, the church continues to struggle with this simple idea. Now, let me be clear, though. Let me be clear. This congregation is as open and inclusive as any I have ever served. Terry's words this morning in the video, video were beautiful. This church has practiced it for a hundred years. Have we stumbled and fallen? Yes. Are we, are we less than perfect? Yes. We at least are on the pathway. And I got to tell you, I got my first paycheck from a church in the summer of 1978. I was a college summer intern at First Christian Church in San Francisco. I've been at this for 45 years. Have I stumbled? Have I fallen? Have I made mistakes? Oh yeah. Well, we don't have time to go over them, but oh yeah. But yet together, we can create the place that Jesus calls us to be. There is some good news here. There's research from the business world, from the corporate world, that says if you can create a sense of belonging with your employees, the bottom line financially will improve. It kind of bothers me that it's the bottom line that got my attention, but it got my attention. I saw this article in the Harvard Business Review. It said in places where they don't feel like they belong, where a, an employee feels like he or she's been excluded, that exclusion actually creates physical pain. It's the Harvard Business Review. This isn't a preacher exaggeration story. It's from the HBR. Have you ever felt excluded? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever felt excluded? Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever been sitting in a meeting and you're trying to make a point at the conference table and somebody to your left, as you glance over there, you see them, you see him rolling his eyes as you're making the point and the person across the way looks back and she rolls her eyes too. Has that ever happened to you? You ever been in a meeting and there's maybe a dozen people or so that are having a conversation and one end of the table there's a little inside joke between three or four people and they just laugh and laugh and everyone else doesn't really know what's going on. It's probably not about them but still it feels exclusive, doesn't it? Harvard Business Review says that creates physical pain. But they went on to say in the research when they create, when there's a, a sense of belonging that's been created, <clears throat> employment, ability, and skill and production goes up by 50%. Retention rates increase by 52%. And absenteeism, people using sick days, decreases by 75%. All of this means the bottom line is stronger. If you have a company of 10,000 employees, that means $52 million was saved 
with those kinds of percentages in place. Now, it's not about the bottom line in the church. It's not about all that. We're, we're going we're gonna to be as generous as we can be, and I trust and believe, and I know you will. I know that will happen, but it's not about the bottom line. It's not about having lots of money in the bank. It's about becoming a place where you belong, about becoming a place where every person matters, where every life, where every one of us is included. Is it easy? It's not easy. It's not. Your pastors here on the chancel, your leaders on the governing board, the, the, the board of deacons, the foundation board, other servants in the church, we're less than perfect. And yet we know. We know this is our calling. We know this is what we are striving to move toward. And when 